morning. Welcome to Shelby Bible Church. It's really exciting to be with you this morning. Really enjoyed our time of worship already together and uh, thankful that we have um, the opportunity to lift our voices uh, to sing and now to turn our attention to the Word of God. Uh, this morning as we get started, I just wanted to take a moment and uh, bring to mind uh, the reality that today is a historical day in church history. And uh, the reason for that is... Uh, may be misrepresented by our culture and how we celebrate today. But today, as you know, is Halloween, right? And so Halloween, people like to have gatherings together. People dress up, go get candy. And in general, it's a day that's a kind of a friendly community day. And, uh, but, but what I want to draw our attention to this morning is that uh, the church celebrates this day for a very specific reason. In uh, October 31st of 1517, a German monk named Martin Luther uh, took what's called the 95 Theses and he nailed it to the door of the church in Wittenberg. And as he did that, he marked what is known as a very important movement in church history as the Protestant Reformation. And it is as a result of that action and the actions following that we have some very critical doctrines of scripture that we hold very dearly as a church today. Now, the reason the Reformation was necessary is because these key doctrines were not being elevated to their appropriate position. And uh, as a pastoral staff, we've been talking a lot recently, uh, specifically because we're in Colossians, when you go to remove something or put something off, you must immediately replace it with something better or different. Because if I just put off, but I don't put something else on, then I can find myself back in the same place. And so what I want to do, there's a lot to... The Reformation, I just want to share with you five doctrines that we today hold very dear and rejoice in as a result of the Protestant Reformation. The first is this, sola scriptura. This means scripture alone. This refers to the reality that as believers, we believe that the word of God is our sole authority in life and practice. Whether it's religion, whether it's daily life, scripture is our authority. Uh, a man, a tradition, a denomination, that is not our authority. The Word of God is. And the reason this is so critical is because it allows you to come to me and hold me accountable and vice versa if I'm out of line. Furthermore, it allows people from varying backgrounds throughout the world to be able to come and to be unified under who the personal work of who Jesus Christ is. And so we confess along with this that Scripture alone is our authority in life. The second one is this, faith alone. I'm going to spare you me trying to pronounce Latin for the rest of them. The next one is faith alone. This refers to that salvation comes by faith. It is not a work that I have done. It is not something I have avoided. It is simply based on putting my faith in a work that someone else has done. And so it's by faith. It is not by work. It is by faith. It is not by the power or will of a man. Second, uh, the third one is this, grace alone. Salvation comes by grace through faith. And so grace is this idea that it is a gift that has been given to me, not based on my merit or my work, but based on the merit or work of Christ. Jesus is the reason by grace that I receive salvation. And he's the next statement, Christ alone. Jesus Christ alone is the only means by which I can be right with the Father. There is no other system. There is no other belief. There is no other person. Jesus Christ is enough. He is sufficient. And so the last one being all glory to God. All glory to God. And so what we have here in these five doctrines is this idea that salvation comes by grace 
through faith in Christ alone to the glory of God alone. Did I miss one? And it's all revealed through Scripture alone. There we go. Incredibly important doctrines that we rejoice in today. And so I don't know where you, where you fall on a day like today. If you go out trick-or-treating, if, if you're for celebrating on a day like today, or if you're totally against it, what I do know is this morning as a church, we have reason to celebrate. We have reason to rejoice. It's because these doctrines have continued because the people before us were faithful in passing them on. God is good. The next thing I want to mention is November 1st was known as All Saints Day, which is today the word that we use, Halloween, which means the eve of All Hallows Saints Day, which is this idea that November 1st, back in the 8th century, the church decided that they were going to create their own celebration to reclaim it away from the pagan celebrations. And so what they did, instead of trying to woo spirits and worship other, other spirits and deities, what they did is they decided, you know what, we're going to celebrate and remember those who came before us who were martyred for their belief in Christ. And so today, we have reason to celebrate as a gathering of believers. The people before us, through God's strength, faithfully passed on those teachings. And today, may it be, say, may be, may it be said of us that we are faithful. And so that is uh, just a little church history. I hope you don't mind that. I love being able to look back and see what has transpired before us. It reminds us that we are a part of a much, much bigger movement. We are part of God's church. So this morning, as we get into it, uh, as we move away from church history into our text this morning, uh, we have been in a series over the past few months called Rooted. And what we've been doing is we've been going through text by text through the book of Colossians, and we've been identifying specifically in the first two chapters who Jesus Christ is. And what we have found as we have studied is that Paul makes a very clear case over and over that Jesus is the only one we need for salvation. He is enough. Paul is writing to a gathering of people who are being uh, assailed by a false teaching that was very convincing and it was very deceiving. And it was causing them to believe that they could find a knowledge or a way apart from Christ to be with God. And Paul is writing to them to say, no, Jesus is the one who brings us into the fellowship of the Father. He is all that we need. And so as we, in last few weeks, have been talking about this idea of putting off certain things, Pastor Mike took us through 3, 5 through 8, and he listed all of these attitudes and actions that must not be named of a believer. In other words, it says put them off. We should not be clothing ourselves with these actions, with these attitudes. And in the text, it's in a, the, the, word, the phrase put off is an imperative statement, meaning it is a command. And not only is it a command, but it's in the aorist tense, meaning do it now. And so Paul is writing to believers, and he is saying, look, these actions, you must put them away, and you must put them away now. And this morning what we're going to find is that there's simultaneously certain things that we need to put on. And they happen in conjunction with one another. As I listen to the command to put off now, I must also listen to the command to put on now. And then last week, Pastor Mike helped us greatly, I believe, as he further unpacked this idea of putting off, and he answered the question, what do I do when I fail to put off these things? I don't know about you, but I, I know very well, even preaching at 9 a.m., I know very well as I go through this text where I fail, where my faults are. And the reality is that we have a Savior who has rescued us in spite of us back when we were saved, and he does the same thing for us today. What we find when we find ourselves failing is these are the steps Pastor laid out for us last week. We need to confess. We confess that we have made a mistake. We return quickly. We take action, and then we put on. 
And so what we have here is this hope that even as we go throughout this life and we continue to fail and we continue to make mistakes, that we have the ability to fail forward because we still have that grace covering us that saved us. And as I was thinking about this, when I was a senior in high school, uh, went to a Sunday night service and was able to coerce and to encourage a friend of mine to come with me. This friend of mine knew who the Lord was. And at that time in his life, he was really struggling to put off certain practices. And he was really wrestling with them. And so I was wanting to invest in him, get him to come to church with me. And he came, and it just so happened that night that what the pastor spoke on identified and dealt with the exact things he was struggling with. I was pumped. I was like, man, he came to church tonight, and the scriptures are being opened. My friend is going to get truth. He's going to get hope. And I was excited. But as the sermon went on and on and on, what I found was that there was clear condemnation for the actions he was participating in, but the hope was lacking. There was a continual, perpetual hammering down on don't do these things, but the problem is, if you're like me, you know you're not supposed to do those things. What was missing was the hope. I remember coming to my pastor afterwards and asking a pastor, you know, my friend came, and he was struggling with these things, and you didn't, I mean, what's the hope? What do we do with this? And he kind of just shrugged his shoulders and threw me off. And so here's the, here's the deal this morning. Here's the reality. You and I fail. We will continue to fail. But we have hope because of the finished work of Christ. It's not dependent on me. And I have hope because of what he has already done. And so this morning as we think about the importance of putting off certain things and putting on certain things, let us not forget that it is not by our power alone we're doing this. We have Christ our advocate with us. And so um, as I'm thinking about this, let's read our text this morning. Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 through 14. Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 through 14. This is what our text says. Put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you this morning for your word and that we have confidence that this is the very word of God. Holy Spirit, I pray as we open this and as we dig in that you would give us wisdom to discern what is true. And that you would also give us the power to be able to apply what we need. Lord, we love you, and we lift you up, and we ask that you would be magnified in our time together. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So what we have is we have what's called the old self, and we have what's called the new self. And what we know is that the old self, with its attitude and its practices, what it tends to do is it tends to view people as a means to get something they want. If I'm not careful, if I'm living out my old self, if I'm just going with what is natural, I will see and I will use people... And I will steal from them, and then I will push them away from me. And this is what we covered a few weeks ago. The old self just wants to manipulate and take and then push away. And then this morning what we're going to find is we look at what we need to put on. It's the, it's the opposite. It's this idea that I'm here to give, and I'm here to serve, and then by doing so, I'm drawing you in. And so as we put off and as we put on, we find that we're drawing people in relationship. And as I was thinking about this, there was a, a time at Moody when we were seniors, Naomi and I, we were engaged, and uh, we were on a walk, and we were going to, I think we were going to go get a bite to eat, and as we were on our walk, a young man stopped us, 
and uh, his clothing was, was dirty, and he looked like he had been uh, in a scuffle of some sort, and so he had my attention. And uh, we began to listen to him as he began to share this very elaborate, very convincing story of what had happened to him. And we just felt compelled that we needed to help him. And so we loaded him up in our car. We took him to the bus station, gave him a chunk of change. I think it was 20 bucks, which back then was a chunk of change. And helped him on his way. And, and then that was it. And we went about our business. A few days later, I was in the downtown area, which I know the whole area is downtown, but there's a downtown to the downtown. Uh, in the downtown area, and I was actually having a coffee with one of the pastors and looked a little down the way, and I saw that young man. We made eye contact, and he immediately ran the other direction. And that really grieved me because what that showed me in that moment was that he was only interested in me, and he was utilizing me to get something that he needed. And obviously he needed something, but what I was wanting was I wish I could have genuinely helped him as opposed to being deceived by him. And so what we find with the old self is that we can be experts at utilizing situations and manipulating them to get what we need. And then what I want to show you on the other hand is a story that, that happened just after that with my grandparents. My wife, or she was my fiance at the time and I, had, Lord, thank you, had just gotten a job, right? We were getting ready to move to Nebraska. Not a lot of money in the bank, and we had no car. We had, we, had, we had very little things. And my grandparents sold us their car for $1. And the only reason that they sold it to us for $1 is because there had to be a transfer of funds. And I'll tell you, that car was what we shared together for a whole year. It got us to work and back. It got us to be able to do ministry. And there was a sense in which, with that, there was a giving without any expectation of receiving anything back. And the reason I bring this to our attention is that you and I have a choice. You and I have a choice as to whether we're going to see people as an opportunity to get something from them or as an opportunity to extend love and extend service to them as we have received from the Lord. And so as we get into this, the first thing I want to share with you this morning is that God's commands are always relational. God's commands are always relational. Look with me at verse 12. It says, Put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. And what Paul does immediately as he opens up into this section of the text is he doesn't go straight to what you need to do. He doesn't list all the things that you should be doing with your life. What he does is he addresses who you are. He identifies that you and I are chosen ones. We are holy. We are beloved. And it is based on that identity that we are called to live a certain way. We always must start with who, not what. Who informs the what. As I was thinking about this idea of God's commands being relational, I thought of my son. I have a picture up here for you. My son, Braden, he turned two last week, and this was a few weeks before his birthday. My wife was in the kitchen fixing some lunch, and she could hear my son crying. And so she came outside, and yes, she took a picture before she held him down, but he was fine. <laughs> I'm going to get in trouble for that. Um, he was fine, but she took a picture of him, and, and when she sent it to me, I was at work, and I had mixed emotions when I saw this. On one hand, it was exciting. I'm like, man, look at my son. He's getting bigger. He's getting stronger. He's exercising that will. Um, but at the same time, it, it also put some fear into me because I know that if he falls off that fence, he could injure himself. If he manages to get over that fence and out, he could get away. So there's a sense that for me, when I am telling my son to get off the fence now, it's because it's relational. It's because I know him. I love him. 
And when, with God, his commands are relational. What I mean by that is his commands are there to help protect us and guide us into flourishing relationship with him and other people. The rules are not there just to bang us over the head. Climbing the fence in itself is not wrong. However, out of care and love for my son, I direct him away from that. And so the, the reality is we have an imperative statement in the aorist tense telling us to put something off, but put something off, and then it tells us to put something on. And the reason for this, is, I believe, is that God wants to be very clear, first and foremost, who you are. And based on who you are, you act not on how you feel, but you act based on your relationship to him. If I'm going to put off certain things and put on, if I'm going to put off these sins and put on the fruit that he's asked me to put on, I'm not always going to feel like it. It is going to come down to obedience based on who I know he is. And so the first thing is, it's command, his commands are relational. And so as you think about this, God has always operated this way. From the beginning, he has operated in relationships. We know that uh, on the one hand, as Chachi, he's in here this morning, he talks about this in our podcast and our discussions. On one hand, God is transcendent. He is beyond us. He is outside of us. He is this God who is above and beyond matter, time, and space because he made it. And he's beyond us, and, and he doesn't need us, right? God didn't create us because he was lonely. God didn't create us because he needed us. If those things were true, he would cease to be God. God created us, as we'll see here in a moment, because of relationship. And as we look at, on the other hand, of him being transcendent, he is also imminent, meaning he is near. He is close. Look at the progression throughout Scripture. When he creates Adam and Eve, they walk with him through the garden. And then they sin, and then there's a separation. And then later on we find that he allows his presence to dwell in a tabernacle, and then in a temple. And then he gets even more progressive in it because Jesus takes on flesh, and he comes and he lives among us. And then when Jesus ascends into heaven after his resurrection, the Holy Spirit of God comes and he dwells in me. And so God is relational in his workings with me and in his commands towards me. And the reality is that God in three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, they have always been in unity. They have always gotten along. There's never been a conflict between them. And like I said earlier, they never have had any need. They created us because of the abundance of love they had for one another. The three of them in perfect unity, experiencing fellowship, created us to enjoy that fellowship with him and then to be able to share that with others. God is a God of relationship. You cannot separate God's relational character from his commands. They are intrinsically combined. And so God is a God of relationship, and his commands are always relational. And so let's continue in verse 12. It says, put on then. As mentioned earlier, this is an imperative statement, meaning it is a command. And then it is in the aorist tense, just like the put off, meaning do it now. And so what we find is, on one hand, Paul is telling us to put these things off and put them off now, and then simultaneously, he's telling us you must put these things on and put them on now. And so there is a need to put off and put on, and it's moment by moment, day by day. It is a constant battle that we are in. And so the put on, the idea of this is, uh, the illustration of this is clothing. It's to clothe ourselves with certain things and to remove certain things from us. And so as we continue, it says, as God's chosen ones. This is another, another word for this would be for the elect, or in other words, those who have been chosen out from a group, right? God has selected people. He has chosen them out from a group, and in Weist's word studies, Thayer writes this, this refers to God's choice of certain from among mankind who were as saved individuals 
to be channels through which others might learn the way of salvation. This choice having been made before the universe was created. And I love the way this is phrased because this is this idea that God has chosen that people would experience salvation by grace through faith in Christ. And he doesn't just leave it there. Those people who have experienced that then are to be channels through which other people can learn of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so sometimes we get really hung up on theological arguments and terms. Here's the deal. God, and I can't explain it all, but God chose you before the foundation of the world that you would be holy and blameless before him. And yet there's a sense in which I must make a step, I must receive that, and I must obey that. And in this, in this, 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 this wrestling is this reality that God has chosen us, that we would then go and we would make the gospel known to others. The word as here is very important. Put on then as God's chosen ones. This word is an adverb of comparison. So it's not just identifying who the chosen ones are. It's actually showing us what you're supposed to act like if you're a chosen one. It's comparing my conduct and my attitude to that which would be, uh, would be uh, similar or, or close to what someone would be like who follows God. That was a really good brain fart, by the way. I don't know if you caught that. Man, um, let me read that for you. It's not simply identifying the believer as the chosen of God, but to bring to mind what is fitting or appropriate conduct for those who belong to God. Sometimes you've got to call it out. Okay, and continuing, it is a statement calling on the chosen of God to ensure that their life is rightly representing who God is. The next word we see is holy. This word simply means to be set apart for God. So we see that, that he's referring to those who he has chosen, who he has set apart for him, and this word is used in chapter 1, verse 2, and it's the word saints. Saints simply means sanctified ones or set apart ones, which is the same word for holy. And so what we, hear, what we have here is we have people who have been chosen, we have people who have been set apart, and then lastly, he refers to us as his beloved. This word is, in the, is a perfect participle, and what this refers to is God's love that was demonstrated for us on the cross. It's a love that denies self for the benefit of the object being loved. And we see that very clearly in the cross, do we not? That God has given us his son. He has sacrificed his son in order that we might be restored to him. And so we are the beloved of God. Meaning that in the past, through the work of the cross, you and I experience the love of God. And it's a present participle meaning that it has a continuing effect today. God loved me and demonstrated that on the cross through his son. And I am now standing in that love and grace today. So Paul appeals as we start this to the relational nature that we have with the Father. It's about who we are before what we do. Because if we don't have who we are set straight, we're going to struggle to live out how we're supposed to act. And so, uh, one verse that catches my mind as we relate to this is verse, 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20. Or do you know, not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, who you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. This is very clear here. It's very obvious to me that you and I have to keep in contention this fact that I am not my own. I belong to the Father. He has chosen me. He has set me apart. And I am his beloved. And as a result of these things, I'm going to act this way. And so as we continue on, the next thing I want to talk about, the first is this, that the commands of God are always relational. The second thing is this, that actions always flow from identity. Actions always flow from identity. And so let's look at these verses once more in verse 12. It says this, Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, 
compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. So what we find is our identity, our, or who we are, informs what we do. And as was mentioned earlier, we know that as believers in Jesus Christ, there is a sense in which there are still two natures at work in me. There's the old nature that I inherited from my father, Adam, which leads me in a place of sin and leads me in a place of hopelessness. And then there's a new nature that I inherit through being born again by believing on the person and work of Jesus Christ. And these two natures are constantly warring. And I have a choice every single day, every moment of the day, which one am I going to yield to? Spiritually speaking, we know that we have been transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. That's justification. We know that there's a battle going on in us to do right or do wrong. That's the battle of sanctification. And in that battle, that's going to continue until glorification, which is when Christ will, re will re receive us to himself. And so the idea behind all this is that until I'm glorified, I must make war. I must battle. I must make an effort every day to yield myself to the new nature, not the old. So thankfulness leads to mindfulness is a statement that, that hits me really hard. If I'm mindful of who I am in Christ, and if I'm mindful of who I am, that I've been chosen, I've been set apart, I'm his beloved, if I'm mindful of that, I believe that that is going to inform how I'm going to act. And so we must be mindful, and Pastor Mike is going to dig into that next week when we talk about letting the, 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 the word of Christ dwell in us richly, letting the peace of Christ dwell in our hearts, and letting us do everything unto his name. So pastor's going to cover that next week, and that helps us. Uh, so let's get in and let's define these terms. So we know that uh, we must first start with who we are and then move into how we're called to live. The first is this, compassionate hearts. Compassionate heart refers to mercy, pity, or tenderheartedness. And the word heart is the word bowels. In Greek poetry, they believe that the kind of the source or the center of human decision-making was the bowels or the intestines. Uh, and so that is where they believed it came from. In Hebrew writings and in Christian teaching, we, we, we would refer to this as the heart. Okay? From the heart, the, from the mouth, the, the mouth speaks, the heart, I can't talk right now. From the heart, from the mouth, I can't do it. Pastor, help me out. From the heart, the mouth speaks. My goodness. Okay. You get the point. <laughs> so, bowels of mercy. And here, here's what I find really interesting here. This idea of compassion is something that is contrasted with the word anger. Both of these in those, those writings are referred to as very violent, very powerful emotions. And so in any given moment, I have the ability to choose, am I going to respond in anger or in compassion? That person who continually annoys me, am I going to allow anger to well up in me, or am I going to respond with compassion? I love in the Gospels, over and over, Jesus is going throughout his ministry, he's teaching, he's healing, and at different points it, says, it refers to how fatigued he is, and he gets up early in the morning to pray, and then the crowds come, and what does he do? Out of compassion, he goes and he ministers to them. Man, when I'm tired and when I'm hungry, anger tends to be the thing that rules, and so we find that we are to put on compassion. And so instead of putting on anger, compassionate hearts is what we are to respond with. And how do I do this? I think it starts with realizing that I have been shown compassion by someone that I didn't deserve it from. 
God has shown me compassion when he had every right in the world to pour out anger. And so we are to put on compassionate hearts. The second thing is kindness. Kindness is to be gentle or to have a gracious disposition. It's this idea of being useful or helpful. And so we are to have an outlook with other people, specifically one another in this room. We are to have an outlook of wanting to be helpful to another. I think it's important, too, that we have a disposition that does not cast down uh, kind of like an attitude of, oh, there they go again. They're going to mess up again. What we want is we want to have an attitude of hopefulness towards other people. And kindness is this ability that even when I'm treated harshly or treated wrongly, it's this ability to respond in a useful manner. It's not just to think nice thoughts about people. It's to figure out how to be useful to people. And so that is kindness. We have compassion. We have kindness. And, and, and from the preacher's outline of Sermon Bible, here are some helpful thoughts on this. A kind person does not act indifferent, harsh, unconcerned, too busy, or bitter. And I don't, know if you, I don't know about you, but what I find is if I allow anger to dwell, usually what comes next is bitterness. And so we have a choice that if we are finding ourselves anger, we must choose to show compassion. Because if I allow anger to reside, I will not be kind. Because that's what's going to pour out. And so a kind person cares for the feelings and the well-being of others, and they are intentional to go and meet needs. They don't wait for someone to come ask them. They don't wait for everyone else in the room to look around and decide not to help. They go to the action and help. Uh, our family went to uh, the Henry Ford Museum a couple weeks back. By the way, that place is sweet. I don't know if you've ever been there. First time being there. My dad's a Ford employee and never been there until now. Really awesome place. But what happened when we were in the food court is an older gentleman dropped his cane. And he was kind of in the middle of the room. And when the cane hit, everyone you could tell everyone's ears perked up and everyone kind of knew something happened. But there was like this pause where there's no movement. And uh, finally, I started to move towards, towards the help and this other woman who was equally as far as away actually beat me to it. And what I, was, what I was thinking about when I was thinking about this message is a lot of times when there's a need, it's far easier to kind of step back and be like, well, is anyone going to get that? Anyone going to help out there? And kindness is this disposition, it's this attitude of there's a need, I'm going in. I'm going to go help. And so we have kindness. The next one is we have humility. Humility. I believe it's C.S. Lewis who said this. Um, he talks about how pride is like bad breath. You don't always notice it, but other people do. <laughs> and the reality is pride, for me, is so much easier, so much more natural than humility. It is so much easier for me to respond in indignation and pridefulness than it is to surrender and to humble myself. And humility is having a humble opinion of oneself, a deep sense of one's moral littleness, modesty and lowliness of mind. It is the ability to take an assessment of myself and to view myself accurately. And I think sometimes what we need is we need community. We need people, whether it's God-ordained relationships like our spouses or it's community with other believers to help us to see that blind spot. When we're acting in pride, when we're acting in a way that is not humble, I need people to come around me to point that out. And so humility is this ability, uh, as, as Christ is laid out as our example in Philippians 2, to not consider myself too important, but to consider the needs of others more important. Paraphrasing, right? It's this idea of focus comes off me and it goes to others. Humility. The next one is meekness. 
uh, Wearsby talks about meekness being power under control. It's this ability to exercise great strength, great wisdom, but to do it in a discerning, wise way. Uh, in in Weiss's commentary, he says this, meekness is this inwrought grace of the soul, that temper of spirit in which we accept God's dealings with us as good and therefore without disputing or resisting. So it's this idea that when situations come my way, whether it's someone who has harmed me or they're annoying me or there's a circumstance I'm wrestling through I don't want to be in, it's this disposition that says God is the one who allowed this to come my way I'm going to surrender under his hand, and I'm going to walk through this faithfully. I'm going to use my power under the control of who he is. And so that's meekness. Next is patience. Patience is this idea of uh, being long-suffering or long-tempered. Long-tempered. Doesn't take me long, unfortunately, to be short-tempered. And this is one of those things, again, where in the moment when I'm feeling myself Feeling that impatience, the command is not to allow my pride to kick in and keep going down that road. It is to stop it now and to put on patience. Patience is this ability to wait and to be satisfied with where God has put me. Whatever circumstance comes my way, whether it's something I'm excited about, something I'm struggling with, patience is this ability to be sustained and to be satisfied where God has put me. It enables me to navigate when I'm wronged. It enables me to navigate when I'm disappointed, and it, ina- and it helps me navigate when sickness or difficulty comes into my life. And so that's patience. Next one is bearing with one another. Uh, Wearsby talks about how this is the idea of holding back or holding up. And when you think about it, God, in his kindness to us, and his mercy towards us, he holds back his wrath against us. And in fact, he doesn't just hold it back. He poured it all out on his son. And so God has shown us this ability to bear with people who are difficult to bear with. And by the way... I am very difficult to bear with. You can be very difficult to bear with. I'm not talking about you specifically, okay? Don't get offended. But it's this idea that we can be difficult to bear with, right? People have to kind of deal with us sometimes, right? And so sometimes what I have to remember is that the way I treat other people, like I have to be mindful of that. It's so easy to get offended by how I feel and then to turn around and do the same thing. So we're called to bear with one another. Something we can forget, like I said, is that you and I have weaknesses. You and I make mistakes. You and I have bad habits. And we have irritating behaviors. Right? And so all these things, when we're mindful of these things, I think it helps us to bear with others who we find unbearable at times. The next one is forgiveness. Forgiveness is to be gracious to a person, and it is to pardon them for a wrong that they've done against you. Forgiveness is a very important one. If we look at our text, look how Paul writes this. If one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. I I really believe that the ability to forgive is really the crux of the matter as to whether a gathering can be healthy or unhealthy. We have got to be able to take an offense that comes our way and offer forgiveness. And it must start in the heart. That person might not ever come to you and ask for your forgiveness. They might not even realize that they offended you. But when you and I allow unforgiveness to harbor in our hearts, whether it's with our families, whether it's with people we work with, whether it's people we go to church with, when that harbors in me, it turns into anger. Anger turns into bitterness. Bitterness can spill over into malice, into slander. And all of a sudden, we are just lashing out at people. And so forgiveness is necessary, and it must come quick, and it must come often. Paul says you must forgive. It's not optional. 
And I think what, what can happen, I, so just to let you know a little secret, I'm, a, I'm what they refer to as a collaborator. So we did this test, and it kind of goes through your personality, and you answer a bunch of questions. And what it found is that I'm a collaborator, which means when we're in a room, my goal ultimately is I want you and I want you to get along, and I want us to be moving in the same direction. And if I'm not careful with that, what can happen is that I can take offenses, or I can get offended, and I can keep it to myself, and I could stew on that. And I can let that just churn in me and churn and churn and churn. And what happens over time is it begins to impact how I think, how I talk, how I feel. And so what must happen, I must not be a pushover, first of all. I must go to people and tell them when they have offended me. And so forgiveness is critical. If you're in a growth group, someone's going to offend you. Someone's going to make you upset. If you're a part of a church and you have relationships that get below the surface, you're going to hurt each other. I can't tell you how many times in recent months we've had arguments and discussions uh, over a text of scripture, and sometimes we have to come back to each other and say, hey, I came off a little hot. Hope I didn't offend you, brother. And it's something that should be quick, and it should be, it should be really easy for us to do. It's one of those things that the longer you wait, the harder it gets. Jesus addresses this in Matthew 18, and I love the reasoning he gives for going to our brother or our sister. He says, if anyone offends you, you go to your brother and you basically you make them aware of what they have done. And the purpose of it is so that you might win them back. The goal of confrontation is not to go wag your finger at somebody and tell them what they did to you. The goal is that you, in going to that confrontation, would win them back. When we have unforgiveness in our hearts, what we have is a break in relationship. And we must mend that. Okay, and so we must confront when someone has offended us. We must forgive. And I love how he says, um, just reading this one more time, if they have a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. Dylan, um, as you know, he's working with our student ministry and with our building and grounds, and he asked this question when we were filming our podcast and just talking around this text earlier this week, what is your favorite, basically what is, your, what is the one story you would share with someone if they didn't know who Jesus was, right? And what would you share with them? And the one that I think of, the one that I love, is the account in Matthew 18 when uh, the king wants to settle all of his accounts. He wants to receive all the debts that are owed to him. And he brings a servant before him, and I can't remember the number, but the servant owed an amount of talents that would not have been paid back in many, many lifetimes. There was no chance. He was never going to pay it back. He begs for the debt to be paid, and he pleads for the debt to be paid, and the king shows him grace and pardons him of his guilt, right? And so the debt is paid, the man is free to go, and we find later in the text that that very man who owed a lifetime's worth of wages goes to a friend of his who owes him a day's worth of wages and begins to shake his coat for it, and when he can't pay it to him, has him thrown in jail. And the scripture tells us that the king, when he found out what that man had done, he cast him into outer darkness. He removed him from his presence, and the, the, the clear picture here is that as you and I have been forgiven, we must forgive. You and I have been forgiven of much, therefore we must forgive of much. And what we have to keep in tension here is this idea that nothing anyone else can do to me can ever come to the level of the sin that I've committed against a holy God. I have offended a holy and perfect God, and yet he has forgiven me, and therefore I must forgive. Now... I didn't mean to get into this, and this is another sermon for another time, but there are circumstances where we're not asking you to go back into them, but we are asking you to forgive. Forgiveness starts in the heart, and it impacts who we are. And so uh, a great quote from Eric Geiger regarding this, 
He says this, grace, God's grace molds us into the image of Jesus. So as we experience grace, extending grace becomes less complicated. So as I'm mindful of the grace of God in my life and as it's molding me and making me to the image of Christ, it makes it so that when I go to extend grace, it gets easier. It gets less complicated. So as we continue with our last one here, love, this is what he says in verse 14. And above all these, or in another way of saying this, is on the basis of all these, put on love, okay, and which binds everything together in perfect harmony. The idea here is that love is that, is that thing that is, is God working in us. God's love, which moved him to action to restore sinners and to restore broken people to himself, it is that that is working in us and how we treat other people. Love is what binds all these other attributes together. If I get love right, then I get humility right. If I get love right, I get kindness right. Corinthians 13, uh, is it 13? Corinthians 13 tells us that, hey, you can play instruments like, like incredibly. You can teach really well. You can just be an all-around pretty awesome person. But if you lack love, none of this means anything. So love is the thing in which binds all these things together. And in other words, maybe, maybe we could say love is the, is the um, man, I can't talk today, Pastor Mike. Love is the suspenders to the pants is what I'm trying to say. Right? Love is what holds it all together. Okay? I promise 9 a.m. was not as brutal. <laughs> but it's okay. The Lord has seen fit that humility is needed today, right? So love is, the, is referring to God's love produced in the heart of a yielded believer. And as I'm yielded to him, as I'm mindful of his love for me, and as that love is being poured out to others, I find that these attributes come natural to me. And so as we come to a close here, next week I'm looking forward to, as Pastor Mike takes us to verses 15 and 17, because next week I think very clearly and helpfully identifies how do we have help doing this. Like how am I supposed to put off and put on right now, immediately, simultaneously, all day, every day? What is God giving me to help me? And what I wanted to put up on the screen is this, that God's means always supply what we need. God always gives what we need. And the, the means that he has given us, and I'm just going to overview them, is he's given us peace through Christ. He has given us the word through Christ. And he has given us the ability to do everything we do in and through Christ. And so as we hold these things in contention in our mind, we have the ability to call to action what I need to do and throw off what I should stop doing. And as I close, this is what I want to, want to finish with. God's commands demand faith-filled action, not feelings-based action. God's commands demand a faith-filled action, not a feelings-based response. And the reason this is so important is because you and I very rarely are going to find ourselves feeling like we need to be kind to someone who's been unkind to us. Feeling like we need to forgive someone who's done something to us for the fifth time. The reality is that God, in, in relationship to him, when he gives a command, it is not something that I have to feel first. It's something that I obey first. And as I obey the command of God, we find that I begin to enjoy it. And the feelings begin to follow. And so the bottom line I want to share with you this morning as we come to a close is this. Putting on Christ enables us to serve others and to draw them near. And so as I put on new nature... I find that I have the resources to serve and to love others and to draw them in through relationship. Would you please stand with me? And we will close in prayer this morning. Father, thank you for this morning and we thank you.
very much that we can gather in this house this morning. And Lord, I, I just want to thank you so much that your word is what we have come here to hear. And Lord, I pray that as we go from here, I pray that you, your spirit would be doing a work in us to help us to apply what we've learned. Lord, help us to be people who walk out the new nature. And Lord, as we sing and as we uh, prepare to go out throughout the week, we pray that you would be lifted up in how we act and how we live. It's in Jesus' name we ask and pray these things. Amen.